The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. All my life, I made money. I made money. I've always been good making money. I have made billions of dollars in business making deals. Donald Trump has never been shy about how much money he has, even though his actual finances are notoriously opaque. But when it comes to his staggering legal expenses, Trump is not looking to dip into his own money. The former president spent $51.2 million on legal expenses in 2023. That money came from one of his PACs. But he'll likely drain his war chest for legal fees this summer, leaving him crunched for cash just as his presidential campaign ramps up spending for an expected rematch with President Joe Biden. Joining me is Bill Allison, Bloomberg campaign finance reporter who's been looking into Trump's legal fees and where the money's coming from. Trump has a reputation for not paying his lawyers. Do all these legal fees mean he's paying his lawyers now? We're definitely seeing payments from his political committees, which have to report, you know, the money that they spend to the Federal Election Commission. So, yes, he is paying his legal bills this time around. And, you know, some of these fees go to help, uh, you know, aides and others who are kind of caught up in some of these cases that involve the president. So how much did he spend on legal expenses last year? And what does that leave? Trump spent more than $51 million on legal expenses last year, and this was all through one leadership pack called Save America, which was kind of his political vehicle set up after his presidency and before he was a candidate to raise and spend money. Right now, Trump has about $23.5 million that he can tap for his legal defense. That includes a little less than $18 million that's currently held by a super PAC. That super PAC, which is the one that's the principal one backing his campaign, has been slowly refunding money to his leadership PAC, which can then use the money to spend on legal fees. So he has that $18 million left. That's all that's left from a contribution of $60 million that this leadership PAC made to the super PAC in 2022 as kind of its initial seed capital. And so now what Trump is essentially doing is he's raising money from big donors for his super PAC and using that money to refund it to his leadership PAC to pay his legal fees. It's a very kind of complicated transaction, but this is Donald Trump we're talking about. For someone who doesn't know much about PACs, this is all legal? You could just transfer money from one PAC to the other? I mean, why not leave it in the PAC it was initially in? So... The reason he transferred this money to the super PAC in 2022 is is that a leadership PAC could only spend $5,000 on Trump's own campaign, and he had tens of millions of dollars left in Save America at the end of 2022. So he couldn't give that money to his campaign. He couldn't spend it on his campaign. What he could do was donate it to an allied super PAC. Now, there are campaign finance lawyers who believe that this is very problematic and probably violates the law. There are others who say that, no, that this is like a legitimate contribution because the super PAC didn't initially support Trump. It supported Senate candidates and House candidates that he'd endorsed. What's fairly clear, though, is is that, you know, if these super PACs are really supposed to be independent, it's a little odd that it'd be giving back, you know, 
so far like about $43 million to a single donor. You know, super PACs generally are not in the business of making refunds that, that large. Uh, so I take it that it is legal to use money from super PACs for your legal expenses? See, actually it's not, and this is kind of why he's in a pickle. Um, it is legal for the super PAC to refund money to a donor, and that, in this case it's Save America. His leadership PAC is paying his legal fees. But once the super PAC has refunded all the money that was initially donated by the leadership pack, he can't tap that money anymore. So that's why we're coming up with the figure that you know roughly he has about $23.5 million left. Part of that is what is in his leadership pack, and part of it is what he's yet to refund from the super PAC to the leadership pack. Very confusing. Is anyone actually paying attention to what happens with these PACs? You know, I'm really sort of surprised because usually you would see like a lot of complaints filed by the different campaign finance watchdog groups. And we really haven't seen, I mean, there's been a few, but it's been sort of quiet, and we haven't seen, like, sort of the, you know, every transaction and every questionable um, transfer being challenged by some, you know, group that has a very literal view, let's say, of campaign finance regulations. I think part of that may be because, you know, the system is so awash in money and both sides are, you know, drowning in political money that there may be less incentive for Democrats and, and the Federal Election Commission, which is made up, let's face it, of Republicans and Democrats, to police the system as vigorously as they once did, which was not very vigorous back <laughs> in the day. But, but yeah, I mean, it's it's been strange that this has really kind of been under the radar that a lot of this has happened without getting, you know, called out by by some of the groups that are concerned about campaign finance laws being enforced. Tell me about MAGA Inc. That's Trump's super PAC. It's, yeah, Make America Great Again, or MAGA Inc. is the super PAC that he set up in the fall of 2022 to back House and Senate candidates, and, and it got $60 million in donations from Save America starting in October 2022. And how much of each dollar from MAGA Inc. did he use to pay his lawyers? Well, if you look at what he's raised in 2023, and, uh, you know, he became a candidate in November of 2022, but 2023 is sort of when the presidential election cycle starts. Of the money the super PAC has raised, 71 cents of every dollar has gone to refunds to save America. And most of that money is going for legal bills. And he diverts 10 percent of contributions to save America for legal bills? So this is when his campaign raises money. And so, you know, if you're an online donor and you go to it's a service called WinRed, it's a, a way to, for Republican donors to donate online to Republican candidates. And when you go onto a Trump page, it says very explicitly that, you know, if, that if your donation, 90% will go to Donald J. Trump for President 2024, which is his campaign committee, and 10% will go to Save America. It doesn't necessarily say that that's for legal expenses, but that's the, the split. And donors have the option, oh, I think it's, you know, it's kind of small printy and most people won't <laughs> yeah. notice it, but they do have the option to put 100% going to the campaign. Uh, when we've interviewed, you know, this is anecdotal evidence to be sure, but when we've talked to Trump small dollar donors before, especially during the Russian collusion investigations, when a lot of Trump's legal expenses were being paid by his campaign and the Republican National Committee, which were raising a lot of small dollar donor money, they would generally say when they found out that's what the money was going towards, they'd say, well, I would have given more if I'd known that. So, you know, Trump has characterized all of these uh, investigations and court cases as witch hunts. And uh, I think to some extent his donors, you know, buy into that. 
Now, the problem, though, is is that, you know, as you get closer to the election and you need more and more money to spend to influence voters, if you have this drag where you're having to divert more and more of it to legal fees, that might leave you short, you know, reaching the voters you need to go to the polls. Now, is there any estimate of how much he might have to spend in legal fees over the next year? I don't know that there's a scientific estimate. There are some people who say that, you know, he may end up spending double what he spent last year. But, you know, we really don't know. I mean, you know, cases can be dismissed. Cases can be thrown out of court. And conversely, cases can drag on. You can have appeals. You can have lengthy pretrial proceedings before you even get to to a trial date. So it's going to be a lot of money. I mean, that's that's the one thing that everybody agrees on. But but to come up with a calculation of exactly how much it's going to be, that's I think that's very hard to predict. Yeah, it's probably going to be much, much more than he paid last year. With the recent trial in the attorney general's case and the upcoming criminal trial in the Manhattan DA's case over hush money payments. And then the fact that he appeals almost every decision, even up to the Supreme Court, as we've seen. Exactly. And and those delays actually cost a lot of money because what you're paying is lawyers to, you know, research court cases and come up with reasons to delay or throw out or otherwise hinder these cases against him. So he's still getting online contributions where he puts 10 percent to legal expenses. Mm -hmm. So what does he do when the money for the legal expenses runs out? Where does he go? Well, there's a couple of different things he could do. I mean, assuming that he's the party's nominee, and it looks like he will be, the Republican National Committee could pay his legal bills. And, you know, there's a dedicated account that the Republican Party raises money for to pay for legal expenses. Um, The maximum donation, if you can count the hard money, is more than $165,000 that an individual donor could give. When you get like, you know, 100 or 1,000 donors giving that much, you know, it starts to be some real money. So that's one option. Another option is to increase the percentage he's getting from small dollar donors and other donors who are giving up to $3,300 to his campaign and, you know, diverting more of that to save America. Once he's the nominee and, you know, once we get towards the general election, I mean, the closer the election gets, the bigger the monthly totals get for campaigns. It's possible that, you know, diverting 10 percent, he might have enough money, you know, depending on how big the legal bills are to pay those legal bills out of the leadership pack. But at that point, probably, I mean, the most precious money in a political campaign, you know, in an election campaign is is what the, your campaign committee raises. You have the most freedom to use it. You can use it in the most ways. You don't have all the restrictions that party, your super PAC, or other money has. And so siphoning some of that money off, I'm sure, is not an attractive prospect for, you know, his campaign strategists and for the president. You left out, Bill, he could pay the legal expenses himself from his own money. <laughs> Well, that's, that is true, too. But this is, I think, another problem for him is that, you know, he just had this $364 million judgment in the civil case in New York about the fraud alleged in his accounting practices and the valuation of his assets. But obviously, there's tens of millions of dollars of interest that could be levied on top of that since that figure was originally determined. So if he appeals that case, he might have to put up a bond that would tap his available cash. Um, you know, Bloomberg's wealth team estimates he's worth $3.1 billion. The thinking is he had about $600 million in liquid cash, although Trump's you know, finances are famously opaque. Uh, he could certainly raise money. He could sell buildings and things like that. But, you know, it's questionable whether he'd be willing to do that, and especially if he has other options like, you know, using the political system to raise the money that way. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with Bloomberg campaign finance reporter Bill Allison. We've been talking about Trump's legal expenses, but what about the legal fines? 
I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Donald Trump will likely drain his war chest for legal fees this summer, leaving him crunched for cash just as his presidential campaign ramps up spending for an expected rematch with President Joe Biden. The former president spent $51.2 million on legal expenses in 2023 and can tap another $23.5 million, most of it stashed in an allied super PAC that he can use to pay his lawyers. But as his four criminal cases ramp up, those funds are expected to run out at a critical time around July. That leaves Trump with only a few unappealing options to keep paying for his defense. I've been talking to Bloomberg campaign finance reporter Bill Allison. So, Bill, we've been talking about how you can pay legal expenses from these funds. Can you also pay fines from the funds? You cannot pay the fines from the funds. So, so that's, that's the one thing he couldn't do. And the legal expenses, really, he can only pay because, you know, and his argument is, and I don't think it's necessarily a crazy argument, is that had he not become a political figure, had he not run for president, that all of this stems from him becoming a candidate. Uh, now, obviously, the New York case, you know, you could say that, well, that, that, this is just real estate dealings. And, but, you know, he would argue. So, Bill, we've been talking about how you can pay legal expenses from these funds. Can you also pay fines from the funds? You cannot pay the fines from the funds. So, so that's, that's the one thing he couldn't do. And the legal expenses, really, he can only pay because, you know, and his argument is, and I don't think it's necessarily a crazy argument, is that had he not become a political figure, had he not run for president, that all of this stems from him becoming a candidate. Now, obviously, the New York case, you know, you could say that, well, that this is just real estate dealings. and But, you know, he would argue that, you know, Nobody went after him before he ran for president. And, you know, this case was put together by an attorney general, a partisan Democrat, he would say, who's going after him because he's the leader of the Republican Party. And it's awfully hard to prove motive. And obviously, you can testify back and forth. But I don't think the Federal Election Commission is likely to challenge that contention at this later date. But the fines, a definite no. The fines are a definite no, yeah. But the legal expenses, it's just like, you know, it's the equivalent of a, of a jail sentence, and in a sense, you're the judgment. And you can't get out of the jail sentence by saying, oh, well, I was paying for it with money raised for the election. So the fine is like that's, that's his, you know, personal actions that, that led to the fine or his company's actions. And, you know, you can't blame that on the political system. Now, his campaign and groups spent more than they raised last year? Right. And that was because, you know, you may remember that after the 2020 election, uh, he went on a fundraising tear. And, you know, I think he raised like $200 million following the election, which is just, you know, an insane amount of money. And this is when he was, you know, obviously, like, in a right up till January 6th was raising money. He took a hiatus for a little while after January 6th, but then was back by the end of February raising money again. And he built up this huge stockpile of money in 2021 and 2022 
this is where the $60 million going to the super PAC came from. And anyway, he had money in the bank for both his campaign, although it wasn't a lot, it was about $3 million at the beginning of 2023. But he also had all of this money in the super PAC account. And the leadership PAC still had a lot of money left, too. How many super PACs and PACs does he have? Can you sort of untangle it for us? So let's just, we'll just do the active committee, because he has a bunch that are inactive. So he has his campaign committee. Uh, He has uh, his leadership pack, Save America. He has a second leadership pack called Make America Great Again PAC, not Inc., which is a super PAC. And that's, that was his, his 2016, 2020 campaign committee that he converted to a leadership pack. And then he's got, uh, Trump Save America Joint Fundraising Committee, and that's the vehicle that raises money for his campaign and Save America, and that's what donors actually give to when they go online to donate. It goes through Trump Save America, which then splits the money between his campaign and the Joint Fundraising Committee. And then he has an allied super PAC called Make America Great Again, Inc., and so that and that's kind of the universe of Trump organizations right now. And he must have some great election lawyers, too, on the tab. He must. And, you know, one of the things that has changed, though, with the Federal Election Commission is that there are now, you know, four commissioners, three Republicans and one Democrat, who tend to think that, you know, you know, campaigns need money and that the rules should be set up to facilitate candidates running for office, not to hamstring them, I, I think is, is maybe a fair way of putting it. And so one of the examples of this is there was a case in Florida, very much like the situation with Ron DeSantis, where there was a Florida politician who had a nonprofit group, and he, or he had a state-level PAC, which had a lot of money that was raised outside of the laws for federal candidates. And it was transferred to a federal super PAC and used to support his election. This is exactly what DeSantis did with Never Back Down and Friends of Ron DeSantis, which was his Florida committee. And the FEC basically gave a, gave a roadmap as to how you could do this legally and what the necessary steps were. And DeSantis followed that to a T. And I think that, you know, that there's just a view that, you know, politics is very important. You know, it's actually, I think that maybe some people feel it's underfunded, that most Americans don't know what the political issues are, and trying to communicate with the American people by political parties, candidates, and independent interests is a vital part of our democracy, and that means money. (laughs) But they do bring cases when candidates step over the line. It turns out that they've stepped over the lines. You know, the way the system is set up, even if the Federal Election Commission does act, it's usually long after the election that it gets around to doing it. And right. a famous example of this uh, from recent times is Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and the Democratic National Committee paid for uh, the Steele dossier, but they did it through a legal firm or law firm of theirs, and the payments were hidden. So instead of it being opposition research and going to Christopher Steele, it was legal payments going to this firm. And the FEC fined them for it, but they fined them for it, like, you know, several years after the election. What is that quote about justice delayed, being justice denied? Let's turn for a moment to President Joe Biden. I understand that he's raised a record amount for a Democratic candidate at this point in the calendar. Well, he's got a record amount of cash on hand, about $130 million. And that's really sort of the critical thing is, is that because right now what candidates are trying to do is in a normal race, particularly one who's an incumbent like Joe Biden, is raise money for the general election. And every dollar he salts away now when he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a serious primary opponent, obviously the legal problems that, that uh, former President Trump has. So he can really, you know, stockpile his money, uh, which he's doing in the campaign and the 
in the Democratic Party and the state parties uh, and getting ready for raising money for one election. And he's got, you know, again, at this point in the cycle, he's got a record amount. And as I say, the, the closer you get to the election, the bigger the monthly totals are that campaigns raise. So I read your article very closely. Anna Wintour is going to participate in a Biden fundraiser in Paris tied to Fashion Week there. So is Biden going to Fashion Week in Paris? <laughs> I don't know that he is. You know, it, I don't think that he is. You know, a lot of times people have fundraisers independent of the campaign. And it would be strange, I think, for a president to raise money on foreign soil. You know, but it doesn't stop. There's a lot of Americans in Paris, as we all know. And uh, as long as they're citizens or green card holders, they can donate to a presidential campaign. So and, and Anna Wintour has done this kind of stuff before where she's hosted events on her own. Well, thanks so much for helping us understand all this, Bill. That's Bill Allison, Bloomberg campaign finance reporter. And as far as that $355 million fine a judge ordered Donald Trump to pay as punishment for a decade of fraud, New York Attorney General Letitia James told ABC News that she's prepared to seize Donald Trump's assets if he doesn't come up with the fine. If he does not have funds uh, to pay off the judgment, uh, then we will seek, uh, you know, judgment enforcement mechanisms in court, and we will ask the judge to seize his assets. She mentioned Trump's skyscraper at 40 Wall Street as one of the buildings she would not hesitate to seize. We are prepared to make sure that the judgment is paid to New Yorkers. And yes, I look at 40 Wall Street each and every day. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, we'll talk about a disturbing legal trend allowing government officials to retaliate against criticism, criticism normally considered protected under the First Amendment. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Turning now to a legal trend you may find troubling, judges throwing out lawsuits where it's alleged that a government official used a position of power to retaliate against the speech of a critic. Joining me is Caroline Grace Brothers of the Institute for Justice, a nonprofit public interest law firm. The Supreme Court will be hearing oral arguments in the case of one of the Institute's clients next month, a 76-year-old grandmother who's suing the city officials of Castle Hill, Texas, for violating her rights by retaliating against her. Caroline, you've written a piece for Bloomberg Law about these kinds of retaliation cases. Let's get some background before we talk about your client's case. Let's start with a case that made headlines. Walt Disney had sued Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, accusing him of politically retaliating against the company for speaking out against a state law that bars classroom instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation. A judge threw out that lawsuit in January. Tell us about that. Disney alleged that Governor DeSantis and other state officials retaliated against Disney by passing a law which essentially removed Disney's control over the Special Improvement District, that is the home of Disney World. Disney has controlled that district since its creation in the 1960s. But now under the new law, the governor chooses the board members. So 
the district court decided that Disney didn't have standing to sue Governor DeSantis because although the governor appointed the current board members of the district, which of course resulted in Disney's loss of control, that action is in the past and Disney's only seeking prospective injunctive relief. So it had to allege an imminent future harm. And according to the court, Disney didn't allege that any imminent future appointments would contribute to its harm. But the court also held that Disney's First Amendment claim failed on the merits, too, and it relied on 11th Circuit precedent that held that when a statute is facially constitutional, a plaintiff can't claim that it was passed with a retaliatory motive. So because the law that you know restructured the district was facially constitutional, Disney couldn't bring a claim that it was motivated by retaliatory intent against Disney's criticism. So now, has that gone to the 11th Circuit yet? Not yet. Um, Disney has filed a notice of appeal, so it will be going soon. But it's based on law from the 11th Circuit, so I don't know how far it'll go, I guess. Tell us about some of the people you've represented who've been penalized because of their speech against public officials or government. Yeah, so so the, the Disney case, is it's an example of a really concerning trend of government officials using their power to punish or intimidate their critics. So, for example, our client, Noah Peterson, when he tried to express his concerns about the police department and the city government at a city council meeting in Newton, Iowa, the mayor had him arrested on the spot for disrupting a lawful assembly. And as he was being arrested, the mayor told him that he was was not allowed to make derogatory remarks about city officials. And he later said, go do your activism where somebody cares. Thankfully, a a judge threw out the charges against Noah and and held that he had a First Amendment right to express his concerns at at a city council meeting. But we're trying to hold the, the mayor and other officials accountable for what they did to Noah. Another example is over in East Cleveland, Ohio. Our client, William Bambro, tried to use his step van as a sound truck to campaign for a friend who was running for mayor. And in response, the incumbent mayor and the police chief and other city officials coordinated a campaign to issue Mr. Bambro citations. And they ultimately towed his van, knocking it out of commission just weeks before the election. And as City prosecutor later confirmed that all of that was done because of Mr. Bambro's First Amendment protected activity. So those are just a couple of examples of cases that we've seen of of government officials using otherwise legitimate power as a pretext to try and, and silence their critics. Do you find these kinds of incidents happening more in certain parts of the country or in smaller towns? I mean, they seem like just clear First Amendment violations. We're seeing it across the country. It's mostly coming up in, or at least the examples that we've seen are kind of coming up in smaller towns. But, you know, as, as we can see from the Disney case, that a larger stage is no impediment to retaliation. We've talked before on the show about the concept of qualified immunity, which was created by the Supreme Court. How does that concept fit in here? Yeah, so qualified immunity is one of several doctrines that have made it very, very difficult to hold government officials accountable when they retaliate. So qualified immunity is a doctrine created by the Supreme Court in the 1980s that protects government officials from from being sued for violating constitutional rights unless victims can show that those rights are clearly established 
And so what that means is that victims have to point to a previous judicial decision, finding that the same conduct in the same circumstances is unconstitutional. And that's very difficult to do. So people who support qualified immunity argue that it gives police officers breathing room, essentially, to make reasonable mistakes in dangerous situations. So think excessive force claims where police officers often have to make split-second decisions. But qualified immunity applies much more broadly than that. It applies to all government officials, regardless of how much time they have to consider whether their actions are constitutional. And it also applies to premeditated retaliation claims, like the kind that we're talking about. So my firm, the Institute for Justice, recently released a report called Unaccountable that analyzed over 5,500 qualified immunity cases and First Amendment claims featured in nearly one in five of those cases. And in most of those, officials were accused of premeditated retaliation for protected speech that they didn't like. And obviously, that's very, very different from the kinds of split-second decisions that are often used to justify qualified immunity. Your law firm is also representing a 76-year-old grandmother. Tell us about her case. So we're representing Sylvia Gonzalez. She's a 76-year-old grandmother. That case is going to be heard by the Supreme Court. Um, One of my colleagues at the Institute for Justice is going to argue the case on March 20th. And that case concerns a different doctrine that applies specifically to retaliatory arrest cases that makes it very difficult to hold officials accountable for those. That doctrine comes from a case called Nieves versus Bartlett, which held that if you are arrested in retaliation for your speech, you can't sue to challenge that retaliatory arrest unless you can prove that there was no probable cause to arrest you. And of course, it's usually very difficult to prove that there was no probable cause to arrest because it's easy for officials to find probable cause that you broke one of the many state, local, and federal laws on the books. But the court in Nieves reasoned that arresting officers often have to make split-second decisions to arrest, and that in those cases, it's really difficult to determine whether the arrest was actually caused by retaliatory intent or by the plaintiff's conduct. So in this case, the Supreme Court is basically going to decide whether that no probable cause rule is actually limited to split-second arrests. So in Gonzalez versus Trevino, Sylvia, our client, she ran for city council in Castle Hills, Texas, and her very, very first act in office was to support a petition calling for the removal of the city manager. But the city manager's allies were angry about that, and they decided to punish Sylvia for challenging him. And two months later, they had her arrested for tampering with a government record. And they they alleged that she had stolen her own citizen's petition. So Sylvia later sued the officials for violating her constitutional rights. The district court let her case move forward. But when the officials appealed, the Fifth Circuit reversed the district court's decision. And it held that the no probable cause rule from Nieves barred Sylvia's uh, retaliatory arrest claim from moving forward. But Sylvia's case, in which the officials took months to plan the retaliation, is very different from the types of split-second decisions that the court envisioned in Nieves. So you don't have that same difficulty in, in determining whether the arrest was, in fact, based on retaliatory intent. So the Supreme Court's going to decide whether Nieves applies to 
cases like Sylvia's, where the officials did have time to consider whether what they did violated the First Amendment. So the Fifth Circuit is the most conservative circuit in the country. It's also sort of gone out on a limb in a lot of cases, endorsing novel theories of law, for example. And the Supreme Court has been taking a lot of Fifth Circuit cases to review, the theory being that the Fifth Circuit may have to be reined in a little. Do you think the Supreme Court is taking the Gonzalez case in order to reverse the Fifth Circuit? Or is that at least what you're hoping? (laughs) Yeah, we certainly hope so. We, we certainly hope that the, the Fifth Circuit's decision highlights the problem with the reasoning in Nieves, assuming that all retaliatory arrests are based on these type of split-second decisions. So we hope that the Supreme Court is going to agree with us that um, Nieves, the reasoning in Nieves, in fact, should not apply to situations like this where officials are not making split-second decisions. They have time to research and find out whether what they plan to do violates the Constitution. I'll just add that we were really hoping that the Supreme Court is going to rule that uh, officials have to be held accountable for retaliatory arrest that's based on a month-long scheme rather than a a split-second decision. Because, of course, if the First Amendment means anything, it has to mean that individuals can criticize the government without fear of retaliation. We'll certainly be listening to those oral arguments on March 20th. Thanks so much, Caroline. That's Caroline Grace Brothers of the Institute for Justice. In other legal news today, a divided Supreme Court left an elite school's diversity policy intact, turning down an appeal that said a competitive Virginia public high school revised its criteria to change its racial composition. The Supreme Court reinforced school efforts to use their admissions policies to foster socioeconomic diversity. The policy in question at Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology was designed to achieve more geographic and economic diversity in the student body. The challengers, made up of some of the school's students and parents, argued that the real goal was to reduce the percentage of Asian American students. The rebuff from the Supreme Court is a setback to racial preference opponents who'd sought to extend last year's Supreme Court decision, barring universities from using race and admissions for the sake of diversity. Although the Supreme Court order doesn't set a precedent, it leaves intact a Fourth Circuit U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that dissenting justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas said today could serve as a, quote, blueprint for schools seeking to circumvent the 2023 decision. Earlier this month, the Supreme Court allowed West Point to continue using race as an admissions factor for now, rejecting an emergency request that sought to halt the decades-old affirmative action efforts at the nation's oldest military academy. There were no public dissents in that case. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.